All right, I think we'll we'll actually start digging in, and anyone uh, who joins us here late, that's fine, they can catch up. Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of your apostle, St. Paul, especially for uh, his confession of the bodily resurrection that he gives us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We ask that uh, this word from Paul would be a comfort to us, knowing that uh, you have all things in your hand and you will see us uh, in the same way that you rose from the dead, you will see us risen and call us from our graves on the last day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, as I said, I thought we'd recap a little bit. And I remember last week that I, I, I couldn't find how <laughs> Luther talks about um, this spiritual body expression here in verse 44. So, just to remind you, um, Paul has been making all these distinctions between flesh and between um, the heavenly bodies and the earthly bodies and, um, and grain, of course. He uses the, the example of the garden, basically, to show how the grain is the type of um, our death and resurrection. But then here in verse 44, but leading into that, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. All right, so um, I think we talked through each of these sentences and uh, you see how uh, kind of the pattern um, that's going on there. The first is the body is sown in corruption. That's referring, of course, to what happens when we die, that there's in death, that there is decay and um, the breaking down of our body. But that's reversed, of course, in the resurrection when it's imperishable, that is, uh, incorrupted. And of course, um, just like Jesus, it says that our, uh, you know, according to the psalm quoted, uh, I think also by. Uh, St. Peter in Acts chapter 2, that um, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, right? Of course, that's our body. And then it's sown in weakness, um, and then it's raised in power, or in dignity, or in glory, right? So this weakness is, or no, I skipped one. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. All right, so dishonor, referring basically to the way that we're all uh, go into the grave naked, right? We have nothing with us. We take nothing with us. But being raised in glory, of course, is radiant like Christ in his glory. Um, sown in weakness, right? So this is, uh, you know, the way that we die, right? Is is we usually grow ill, sometimes sudden, but not often. Sometimes it takes quite a while, right? And become weaker and weaker until we finally um, no longer really can live. But then notice it's raised in power. Uh, and then this expression we talked about a little bit about the natural body versus the spiritual body, uh, and this is where um, Luther says that I really think he lets lets his imagination run quite a bit. It will be like the angels um, to quote uh, Jesus in, in Matthew twenty two. This is what Luther writes: the resurrected body will be so strong that with one finger it will be able to carry this church. With one toe, it will be able to move a tower and play with a mountain as children play with a ball. And in the twinkling of an eye, it will be able to leap into the clouds and traverse a hundred miles. And then again, referring to this spiritual body, he says something quite curious. He says, 
Um, A spiritual body is nourished and preserved spiritually by God and has life entirely in him. And then, when the body thus lives spiritually in God, it will sally forth into heaven and earth, play with sun and moon and all the other creatures, and also be delighted in this. It will be a completely spiritual existence or life of the whole person covering with covering with both body and soul. So uh, um, Luther's speculation, I think it's, well, it's at least encouraging, is that this spiritual being um, that we're raised in our bodies, um, but that our bodies are no longer limited in the capacity that they are now, as we know, uh, through the fall and descent. Of course, the most obvious thing there is that it will be eternal, that we'll live eternally. All right, and then we talked about um, the the ordering of things, right? We talked about uh, first, the man was of the earth, and the dust, and then um, those who are made of the dust, and then the heavenly man, and made of the heavenly, we've borne the image of, of man. We talked a little bit about the image of God last week. All right, and I think that gets us caught up to where we are in verse 50. All right, so let's read that. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Quoting Hosea 13. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. All right, uh, working backwards here, it's very important. This therefore, uh, hosta in Greek, um, this conjunction here, which indicates the reason why he's um, emphasizing this confession of the resurrection, why he's giving that confession to the church in Corinth. Um, It is so that um, they would remain in the faith, that their hope would be grounded in the promise of the resurrection. Remember, we talked about earlier in the chapter, chapter 15, it seems that there are people in the church that think that they're already living the resurrected life. Um, And then we've talked quite a bit about how we live both in the now, that is, we're declared holy, forgiven freely for Christ's name. We have the new man, Christ, um, who dwells in us by faith through our baptism into him. Um, But we're also not yet, that while we remain in this life, in this body, we we have our flesh and blood. And we're limited by that, right, by our sin. And and actually, there's a conflict there between um, the old man and the new man, who is Christ. Who dwells in us by faith again, so and through our baptism. Uh, so there is an, a not yet as well that we look forward to the day when the body of, of death will finally be put away with, as he says here, and the corruptible puts on incorruption, the immortal or the mortal puts on immortality. Right, that we have not yet experienced. Right, so we still look forward uh, towards that. But that's the reason why he writes um, to be steadfast, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Right, share this if you like, this message with others, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It's not a, it's not a waste of time, if you like. 
even though it's hard work and it often goes unrecognized, it's still uh, worth the effort, so to speak, because it's done in the Lord. All right. Um, let's go back to the beginning then. All right, so now, verse 50. Um, now, I, this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, right? So there is no kingdom of God, no heaven, no, no uh, really, church for those who are um, living only according to the flesh, sinful flesh. But rather, um, to inherit, one must be made an inheritor, right? So a child. And, and that's that new birth, that new washing of new birth that received by the Holy Spirit. Again, baptism. All right. Uh, and nor does corruption inherit incorruption, right? So we're referring to the kingdom of God being this incorruptible, this eternal kingdom. Uh, and so as long as we have corruption, that is our flesh, we cannot in- inherit um, eternal life, right? So what happens to the flesh? You die, and it's put in the grave, right? Uh, now, Paul calls it a mysterion here, a mystery, a hidden truth, right? It's true, um, but it's not seen, so it has to be received by faith. All right, so we shall not all sleep. Again, that's a euphemism for uh, what? <laughs> for death, right? But we shall be changed, transformed, if you like. Uh, metamorphosed, if you if you want to use, say, the transfiguration as a kind of an example here. Um, we shall be changed, but note, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, right? There'll be no time lapse between the word that the um, that Jesus speaks and the inheritance, the new, hmm, the new life. And, and it's for everyone, by the way, whether we're alive or we're dead, we'll all be changed. And the twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. Um, what's the deal with the trumpet? What do you think about that? Um, think about the Old Testament and the way that trumpets are used as, you know, to indicate victory, right? Uh, campaigns against enemy. Um, trumpets are also used in the prophetic voice uh, to announce the the uh, salvation of God's people. Uh, Mount Sinai, loud trumpets blasted from heaven signaled the Lord's descent onto the mountain and his giving of the proclamation of the Ten Commandments. Um, when Israel would advance through the desert and march against her enemies, um, there would, they would march with two silver trumpets. You can see that in Numbers 10. And they're also blown on days uh, where the people would rejoice in God's saving them. All right. The trumpet will sound and then the dead will be raised incorruptible. And again, um, they're corrupted. The, their bodies are corrupted in the grave, right? They see death and decay, moth and rust, right? Um, but they'll be raised incorruptible, that is, restored. Their bodies will be restored. This transformation is necessary. Why? Because the corruptible cannot inherit the incorruption, right? Cannot in- inherit the kingdom of God. The mortal must put on immortality. Yeah, good to have you, Rachel. Thanks for joining in. Um, so it's all necessary. And, and that word, uh, it's kind of, yeah, it's here in, in English. It's probably not as strong as it could be. For this corruptible must, there's the word, um, dei in Greek, must put on incorruption. And then it's, a, it's assumed here, the mortal, this mortal must put on immortality. It's necessary. Um, this change must happen. Right? We as long as we have our, our sinful flesh and blood, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
and so it must be put off. Um, but again, we're not talking about inheriting what, just like some kind of uh, angel-like existence, uh, a spiritual existence, but we, we receive our bodies back again, but incorruptible and immortal. And I love this picture that Paul uses. He uses the same thing in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4, referring to it as a sleep, right? And then, um, you know, as we're awakened, we're clothed with a new outfit, if you like, and uh, a new spiritual body, and we're brought into the kingdom. And uh, from our perspective as the dead, it's just a, a, a moment, right? A twinkling of an eye, just a moment. And of course, um, the dead... Um, are sleeping without dreaming, right? So there's no real sense of passing of time anyway. Okay, so then when all this has happened, um, the prophecy of Isaiah will take place. So you have the prophecy here in verse 54, Isaiah chapter 25, um, verse 8, death has been swallowed up in victory. Let's look at Isaiah. Let's see the context of that. Again, Isaiah 25, verse 8. Um, you've heard this, we hear this reading in our lectionary quite a bit, and in the, every year. In this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, mm, and of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Quite a lovely text, yeah? All right, we didn't quite go back to where it was supposed to be. All right, so the, the, prophet, the original prophecy um, has the Lord of hosts as the subject of the sentence. He will swallow up. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away all tears from, uh, tears from all faces, which actually St. John quotes in Revelation um, chapter 21 as well. But here, Paul takes the grammar of Isaiah and inverts it, interestingly enough. Um, he makes death the subject and then makes it swallowed up by the victory that is in the Lord of hosts. All right, so it's Christ's victory over death uh, that brings about the to- its total subjugation and extinction. Therefore, there will be no more death. Quote again, Revelation 21, uh, also Hebrews 2 and 2 Timothy 1. Then, um, <laughs> this is Paul, Paul quoting Hosea here, does it, it's like a taunt to death, right? I mean, he's, this is much like a, a favorite hymn of ours now, um, God's Own Child, I gladly say it, right? Uh, where each stanza, we, we mock the enemies of God, we taunt them. This is where I think the author, um, Neumeister, right? Um, what is, I, I just was talking to my mother about this hymn. Because um, they were reading it to my my aunt, who's near death. Anyway, um, sin disturb my soul no longer. I am baptized into Christ. Okay, that's the second stanza. Death, you cannot end my gladness. I am baptized into Christ. Uh, um, Satan, drop your ugly accusation. I am baptized into Christ. That's the way each of the stanzas start. Right. So sin, death, and devil get get mocked um, um, by well. Putting, throwing in, into those enemies God's word and what he has done for us in our, uh, by his death and resurrection, which he gives us in, his, in our baptism. So here, Paul does the same thing. He quotes, quotes it like, where is your power now, death? Huh. Uh, where is your ability to cause so much pain? 
And again, it's adapted from Hosea 13. So we should probably look at that too and get, get some of the context. Um, yeah, let's, here we go. We'll go to verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from, the, from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come from the wilderness. And then his spring shall become dry in the fountain. Right, so you have the judgment there. But right in the middle, again, this taunting of, of death and the grave. O death, um, the Septuagint translates that, where is your punishment? All right. And O grave, or also in Hebrew, that's Sheol, um, where is your sting, or I will be your destruction. So this is an important note. We've talked about this before. Um, Paul is not quoting the Hebrew in 1 Corinthians. He's actually quoting um, the Greek Old Testament. He does that frequently. That's why the translation is a little bit different there. So, O death, uh, I will be your plagues. O Sheol, I will be your destruction. It's a little bit different, but I think it's still the basic same idea. Right, but um, again, translating from the Greek there. Um, So it might be asked, um, in specific here with verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Um, If death is so painful, um, why is death so painful if it's just a transition to immortality? And in here again, um, sin is the sting of death and, and death is painful because sin is painful, right? It's a bitter enemy. Um, as he said way back in verse 26, uh, that puts the human race, all human race, in um, iron fetters and in bonds. That was back again, chapter 15, verse 26. You have to go back. Previous reason, reading. Um, you, I guess we'd say it this way. Sin stings the human conscience of the dying person. And it's really, it's sin, according to God, that is responsible for the breakdown of the human body. All right. And that even that very separation of body and soul upon death is an assault on our humanity. It's not the way that God would have it be, which of course is why on the last day he restores us body and soul together again, um, which is exactly uh, the point. Think about like what Paul says in Romans 6, right, where he says the wages of sin is death. So here the sting of death is sin. So the reason why death is painful is because of sin, right? just like childbirth, actually, uh, thinking of Genesis 3. Um, but also. Um, the reason why we die is because of sin. It's what, what, bring, what brings that. And then notice that the strength of sin is the law. So it's actually God's word that brings all, um, all, all humanity, all sinful humanity, under captivity um, to sin. It reveals a sin. Um, there's an expression that uh, one commentator says, I think it's quite colorful, that, that God, the law of God is like the footstep in the grass that stirs up the snake the serpent that's sleeping there to life, right? Think about how Paul talks about sin, that he didn't know what coveting was until the Lord gave him the command. And now having the command, um, he covets all the more, right? It actually increases the trespasses, uh, which is funny because (laughs) Christian parents um, sometimes, but I think even pastors and their catechesis of young people 
um, spend a lot of time on the Ten Commandments. And uh, yes, we should. We know the commandments because they do show us the way that we ought to go. Um, but as our Lutheran confessions make quite clear, that the the chief use of the three uses, so curb, mirror, and guide, is the mirror. It shows us our sin. The law, to quote the Lutheran confessions, lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. It always accuses. That is, it always shows us our sin, and it even increases sin, so that all people would be brought under its um, captivity, right? So think about the way that hopefully, you know, I preach, and maybe, you know, if you're not a member, uh, your pastor preaches. Is he preaches the law so that you would be accused, right? And having been accused, you, you say, who's going to save me from this body of sin? To quote Paul from Romans, right? How, how, how can I possibly be saved? Because my sin is great. Which is exactly right where God wants you. He gives his son Jesus to die for you to forgive you your sins, right? Not to, not to excuse your sin, as we talked about this morning in our daily prayer, um, nor um, to simply leave you there dead in the ditch. Think of um, the product, or not the prodigal, the uh, story of the Samaritan on Sunday, but rather to meet you precisely there at your lowest point under being held down, you know, knee on the neck um, by God's law, right? But to pick you up, to lift you up, to save you, to forgive you, to give you life again, right? In Him, not in yourself, but in Him, right? Uh, and that's really the reason for then, um, the reason for, for the severity of the laws that. Ultimately, with death, especially as, as we face death or as we're around those um, who are dying, uh, we see that there really is no way for us to save ourselves. That enemy cannot, there's, there's not, literally nothing we can do. Um, we can try to avoid, we can do medical treatments, but in the end, um, that, that, I guess, grim reaper, if you want to call him that, he reaps the harvest that he has sown. It's actually, the idea of a grim reaper comes right out of this chapter, you know, being sown a seed and then being harvested. Yeah. So yeah, all that bit about the, the law arousing sin, um, that's really also in Romans. So I'm, I'm importing quite a bit of Romans here. Romans 7 would be that. But even like Galatians says that the law is a deadly force. That's Galatians 3, I think. Yeah. Um, so in order for death to rule the human race, the law must be present. I guess that's that'd be a good way to summarize that, right? Uh, and it works transgressions of the law to incur the penalty of death so that all would be brought under its captivity. Um, it's, it's, it's what we call God's alien work. Again, he doesn't want to see the sinner dead, as we sing in the hymn, um, but that they repent and live. But ultimately, of course, there's this glorious day in Greek, or but. <laughs> um, this is what we call a gospel but, right? It negates everything we just said uh, is while it's true, it does not hold up under what? The victory that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, through his suffering and death for our sins, right? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord. Um, I love the way that Luther talks about this reading, so I wanted to share this with you, this part. We can join in that song, thanks be to Jesus Christ who gives us the victory, right? Um, and in that way, always celebrate Easter, praising and extolling God for a victory that was not won or achieved in battle by us, it is far too sublime and too great for that, but was presented and given to us by the mercy of God. He had compassion with our misery, for which no one could rescue us, and he sent his son and let him enter into the battle. 
He laid these enemies, sin, death, and hell, low and retained the victory. He transferred this victory to us so that we may say it is our victory. Skipping ahead a little bit. We must keep this in our heart in firm faith and confirm ourselves in this and always be engrossed in such a message of thanks and sing the victory in Christ. And in faith and in this, in faith in this, we must cheerfully depart this life until we experience this victory also in our own body. May God help us to that end through the same dear Son. To him be glory and honor forever. Amen. What a beautiful um, sermon from Luther. Uh, on that text from 1 Corinthians 15. You can find it in volume 28 if you've got Luther's works, page 209. All right. <clears throat> yes, yeah, so thanks be to the victory. And I think um, this is a missing component um, that I found uh, probably in a lot of our dialogue about the relationship of faith in Christ um, to Christian action, to work. Is that We talked about this last week, I believe, um, but it's worth reiterating, um, that there is the faith that is handed over, that is given, the one, the faith of the apostles, the testimony of the eyewitness, eyewitnesses, right? We receive that word, uh, or if you like, the summary of that word in the commandments, the creed, and the prayer, right? We receive that word, but that word isn't just simply received by us into one ear, but it's confessed by us, it's prayed by us, it's sung with praise and thanksgiving, right? So the purpose of the divine service, of course, is for God to deliver his good gifts to us. But you note that throughout the divine service, we respond, thanks be to God, praise be to God. Um, Think about what we say uh, in the preface to the Lord's Supper, lift up your hearts. That is, um, think of the higher things, the things that God has done. And then the congregation responds, we lift them up to the Lord or unto the Lord, depending on which translation, right? Um, that, That we spend our time in divine service receiving and in receiving, um, thinking, praying, confessing, singing of the things of God. And it's, it's actually in that, that connection then between he, receiving, confessing, um, that we li- then live in that, say, forgiveness of sins, in the glory, or yeah, really the glory, the gospel of Jesus. Uh, and having been forgiven, having responded with praise and thanksgiving, um, God the Holy Spirit actually works through that um, in our in our lives through that faith that has been given and confessed. Um, so this is one of the things that's interesting um, about about the divine service. Is often I think people think of it as just like going through the motions or just doing I don't know rote repetition or something like that, um, and it isn't. It's actually about remembering um, who God is for us, right, and confessing that uh, actually against the old Adam, against the flesh. <laughs> Um, putting to death the old Adam through confession, actually confession of our baptismal faith. Um, so that's that's actually quite important. Um, I love then Paul's admonition, which we already talked about a little bit here. This therefore, but be steadfast, be steadfast. Let's don't don't move around. <laughs> you know, be anchored to this confession that it is in Christ that we have the victory over sin, death, and devil. Right? Not in ourselves, not our own doing, um, but in Him and him alone. It's really a lovely text. All right. And I think, yeah, I think we can probably actually, I don't think we need to spend too much time on chapter 16. Um, it's pretty straightforward. So we'll just read it and we'll see, see how it goes. I'm going to switch to English standard for this. All right. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, it's like an addendum almost, postscript. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Uh, let's deal with this first part. Okay, first, and we'll keep going. Um, a collection for the saints, that is the saints in Jerusalem. He's quite clear. He talks about this elsewhere. Um, I want to say in Acts 24, you can read about it. Um, there's, a, there's a famine, actually, or a, a, some kind of blight in Jerusalem. So there's a great deal of need there. I love what he does here. He's like, look, when I get there, I don't, we don't need to deal with this. You've already done it. So I'm here. I'm giving you some instructions. Collect for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. All right. Um, but notice he actually um, puts up, sets them up with a little bit of godly competition, right? Just like I told the churches of Galatia. In other words, you don't want, you don't want the Galatians to outdo you <laughs> in this matter. You can read uh, the book of Galatia about that. He's founded a lot of daughter churches here in Macedonia. Um, in, in addition, there's uh, Achaia is another one. Oh, Macedonia, Achaia, and then Galatia, right? Um, and he's already directed them, like I said, um, to do this work. So uh, now you Corinthians, yeah, let's see if you can, you can do as well or better, right? Um, note also he instructs on, really, I think, not usually used for a stewardship text, but I, it's actually a lovely text to kind of show you how to go about um, setting aside some of what you have been given, I should say, by God um, for the needs of the, of the church. Um, so what does he say? Each day, first day of the week, uh, so b- before you begun the day's week, so this would be um, on the Sabbath day, actually, which is the first day of the week for them, uh, to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, that is, um, as, as God has been given to you. Right? So look, see what you've been given that week, um, see what your needs are, and of the surplus, and you know, there's a presumption that there's always a surplus, which I don't think we always believe, but <laughs> it's actually true, um, of that surplus, set it aside and do that each week as a discipline, as a habit. Right? We don't think of the giving of our offerings as a habit or as a discipline, um, but I think that's what Paul's setting up here. Then there's going to be no need to go through a whole rigmarole when we get there, some kind of stewardship campaign or something for the needs of the saints. Just each week, in your prayers, each Monday, Sunday, in their case, you know, think about it, look at what you've got, take some of it, set it aside, put it in the, in the cookie jar, whatever, however you want to do it, and then I'll take that to Jerusalem. It's really lovely, and I think um, we do well to remember that this is, this is the way, this is really a great way to approach our offerings. Um, I don't personally have any problem with um, doing like direct deposit, <laughs> and um, the thing is with direct deposit is that you kind of choose and then you just kind of forget about it. And it isn't necessarily reflective, um, you know, of what you've actually received. I suppose if you have a reg- if you're getting regular consistent income, um, you know, because you're salaried or you're in retirement or something like that, um, then, then it makes perfect sense. Um, but you know, in their kind of environment or even in our own environment where we have quite a bit of farmers, you know, your income varies pretty substantially throughout the year. Maybe not the dairy farmers, but but the other farmers. Because most of our dairy people, um, you know, they milk every day. So their income probably doesn't vary too much just based off of the uh, the market price. 
All right. Keep going. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. Again, more money. (laughs) For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. And it turns out um, that that doesn't actually work out, I don't think. Um, yeah, because he says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 that he intends to come to them, um, but I don't think he ever actually makes it, if I remember correctly. All right. Um, I intend to spend some time with you as the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. All right, so he's got many much opportunity, which you can read like in Acts 14, where it says, uh, now when they had gathered the church, they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. All right, so it's a Gentile mission there. Um, as far as adversaries, he talks about like, say, in Acts 19, when he says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. All right, so there's some examples of that kind of situation. Um, Actually, you know, uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's substantial enough on that. All right, so he's just talking about his travel plans, if you like. And uh, again, he's looking to them for support or help. Pentecost would be somewhere in May and June. So this talk about the um, coming for the winter, you know, somewhere later on. All right. I think that's good on that. So let's keep going. When Timothy comes, verse 10, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Now, you know, Paul wrote letters to um, Timothy as instruction on how to be a pastor, and it's pretty clear that Timothy is quite a young man. Of course, having been um, tutored quite well by his mother, Eunice, I think is her name, right? Um, And earlier in the letter, he had talked about uh, Timothy coming um, back in chapter four, actually. Yeah. It's chapter 4, verse 17. Yeah, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, um, who will remind you of, the, of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere and in every church. All right, so Timothy is going to come. Um, put him at ease, right? Take care of him, right? That's the first point. Um, but he does have grounds for concern for Timothy. So he's, he's really trying to set Set Timothy up for success, if you like. Um, uh, it, it seems, just a little bit of a hypothesis here for my notes, Timothy seems to have suffered from some kind of timid disposition. It caused him stomach troubles and other ailments. You can read this, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 1, uh, 2, and 4. Probably still in his 20s. I think most people agree on that. Um, so he's a young guy, right? And don't be offended by him in that, in his youth. Uh, he even says that to Timothy in, uh, in the first epistle to Timothy, First Timothy 4, when he says, let no one despise your youth. Uh, we have already established this, we've read through First Corinthians, that there's some quite arrogant people here 
in Corinth. I mean, this is not exactly a, um, you know, this is one of these congregations that probably chews up pastors, <laughs> especially young pastors, straight out of seminary, if you like. Uh, and, and this letter, of course, is going to be um, quite hard for them to hear. He's been quite um, intense with them. But so he says, you know, let no one despise him, right? And it, like he said in First Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Um, you know, he's giving them a little bit of a warning here, I would say, um, to receive him as they would receive, receive Timothy as they would receive um, Paul, right? Because he says that in verse 10. He is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Uh, help him on his way and in peace that he may return to me from expecting him with the brothers. All right. Um, so this, this idea of the peace, this is the greeting that they make of those um, who are uh, of the way, right? Um, and actually we see this, yeah, we see this play out quite a bit in the book of Acts, so you can go read those. All right, and then finally, concerning our brother Apollos. Now, we talked about brother Apollos back uh, at the beginning when you talked about, you know, I planted, Apollos watered. We know quite a bit about Apollos. He was a Jew um, born in Alexandria, according to Acts 18, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures who came to Ephesus. I like the uh, hypothesis that Paul uh, ghost wrote the book of Hebrews by way of Apollos. I like that idea. There's a lot of Pauline expression in it. Um, I think it, it, it certainly has Paul as its uh, origin as far as um, the interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, especially. Um, you know, Hebrews being kind of the companion book to really to Leviticus of all books, um, Old Testament equivalent, New Testament equivalent. So the interpretation, but also of Exodus and Genesis too. And I think Paul is probably uniquely qualified to do that being a Pharisee of Pharisees and knowing his scriptures forward and back, Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but that um, it, it's quite a bit, the language, while it has a lot of Pauline kind of flavor, it's, uh, it's quite a bit more elegant than that. Um, the Greek is, is uh, it's more beautiful, I would put it that way. And Paul is a little bit more, um, you know, down to earth, I suppose, with his language. So this, knowing this about Apollos from Acts 18, that he was eloquent, but also mighty in the scriptures. I mean, it's possible um, Paul in, influenced it and that it was written by Apollos. I like that idea. Um, by the way, Hebrews, not having a definitive author, it does mean that it is, a dis and it has been a disputed book in the church. Um, we love it, but we don't take doctrine from it uh, uniquely. Um, but there's hardly anything strange in the book that you can't find a uh, similar expression elsewhere, either in an apostolic epistle or uh, straight out of the Gospels. So uh, not a problem, really. Um, it, it's disputed in the same way that Revelation is disputed as far as its canonicity, um, but uh, not in a way that it, it isn't included in our Bible, for example. Um, we're just careful not to teach a doctrine unique only from the book of Hebrews, um, but, but to teach in harmony or unity with the rest of uh, the New Testament witness. Okay, so there's Apollos. I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. <laughs> or God's will for him. Yeah, his will or God's will for him? It's always a question, isn't it? He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful 
stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. All right, so um, this is the kind of a previous topic we talked about with Apollos. It's at the beginning of the book. Um, I don't think there's any kind of jealousy or rivalry between Paul and Apollos. Like I said, uh, Paul planted, Apollos watered. He said that earlier in the book. Um, it does It does seem to be that um, uh, Apollos has a little bit of a hang-up with going back there. Um, so I, I think maybe what Paul's getting at uh, it was not at all his will to come now, is that uh, Apollos and Paul are not walking together at the moment either. Not, not that they're disagreeing, but that Apollos has, got, has kind of struck out on his own in his, in his work. Um, and that he, if he were still in Ephesus with Paul, right, Paul's writing this from Ephesus, um, that he would have added a greeting um, from Apollos, but that he's already kind of taken off. So we don't really know what's going on. Maybe he had other tasks going on in another place, or maybe there was, some, because of the conflict between you know people saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, that maybe he's worried about um, causing division, um, further division by visiting. So if Paul visited and Apollos visited, then these factions may you know go at each other's throat, something like that. Uh, whatever it is, uh, Paul does say he'll come back. Now I love these marching orders here, verse thirteen and fourteen. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Uh, a very unpopular thing to say: act like men, <laughs> and then be strong. Let all that you do um, be in love. Um, all four of these are images from warfare. And I think we've talked about, uh, it's a Bible study I'd love to do. I have, I have some materials on this developed by a pastor friend of mine, um, talking about all of the military imagery that's used in the New Testament. Um, they would know this quite well, of course, you know, because the Romans were everywhere <laughs> and in every city, uh, whether Jew or Gentile city, um, they, could, they could witness this. Um, but also, you know, the Old Testament witness, of course, talks quite a bit about warfare uh, and also the battle against the enemies of sin, death, and devil are presented in kind of warfare terms. Um, Paul does that with like sword of the spirit, you know, breastplate of righteousness, all of that. Um, and then also think, you know, the way that God handles unbelief in the Old Testament with plagues or with warfare, right? Where he overcomes unbelieving enemies. Um, so like ancient Israel in the wilderness, I mean, they're marching through the wilderness. So this, what's important here is that, um, as has been a theme through this whole book, the church in Corinth, they need to stand not only strong, but together. They need to stand together, firm in the faith. Uh, watchful, like watchmen uh, on, on, the, on, the, um, on the wall, right? For enemies. Um, firm in the faith. Um, this is, uh, the opposite of this would be to get, become slack, you know? too relaxed like i want to be right now because i've been <laughs> all the way from uh, our daily devotion and through chapel and then preparing for this and also teaching catechesis to the young people and now we're here yeah it's been a long day um and again you know be watchful is not to be like drunk or um asleep right and then be manly and, and be strong these two are imperatives that are put together um this is actually uh, I think we can see this in the Psalms. So uh, I'm going to give you two examples here. Um, Psalm 27. Uh, no, not Matthew 27. Psalm 27. Sorry about that. Yeah, there it is. Uh, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. 
Be strong. There it is. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Um, Note also then Psalm 30, verse 25, I believe. Is that what I want? No, 31, actually. Problem is the Psalm numberings are all different. Depends on you. Yeah, there it is. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Be strong, right? Um, of course, that strength is not going to come in us. It's not natural to us. It's, you know, it's a, it is an admonition or an exhortation. And this was the kind of, these both those Psalms, they would actually pray before they went out to war. So both uh, Psalm 24 and Psalm 31, or 27 and 31 which is pretty interesting. Um, as to the uh, be, be manly, <laughs> and sometimes that's rendered as like be courageous, right? Um, but to have confidence, I think that's a good way to put it, right? Um, and again, military terms. So despite today um, not having any limitations on who can serve in our military, that's not the tr- that's not the case here or before. Women and children stay home. Uh, there are a few exam- exceptions, of course, uh, of women in battle, but uh, for the most part, no, it's the men. So act like men. That's part of being a man. Just defend the women, defend the children, be strong. But note that um, there is an exhortation here. No, even though you, this is warfare and this is like army language, manliness and courage doesn't mean that you can be ag- aggressive and abusive, right? It needs to be done in love. That is according to the law, according to the command. Um, don't fight against each other. Fight together, right? Um, but always, again, promoting that koinonia, that faith that we talked about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? Christian love and unity. Bring the church together. So even in your watching and being firm and being strong and acting like men, um, do it for the building up of the body, not not and arrogance or um, aggressiveness, right? All right. And now finally, yeah, here we go. I urge you, brothers, that you, I mean, you can say brothers and sisters, but it's fine. Brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, or uh, Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. All right. So um, note those in your midst um, who, well, who take care. And these are the people who are going to bear this letter, actually, um, from Paul back to Corinth. So hold these people in honor um, for their service, for what they have done. Um, yeah, the first converts, the first fruits, this is all, um, you know, these are people whom are new to the faith, so also be gentle with them. So we see that, uh, and be subject to them as they would be subject to Paul. Uh, and just like he said with Timothy, uh, and rejoice with them too. All right. So that's all true. Um, because they've cared for me, Paul, right? They've refreshed my spirit. All right, and then finally, kind of the postlude here. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, we've talked about. The tent makers, right? 
uh, with Paul, together with the church in their house, remember they meet in, in the homes, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Oh, I love that expression, hearty. Yeah, like a soup, but <laughs> no, uh, from the heart. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I was trying to think if there's a better uh, translation. No, I think hearty greetings is fine. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And he's talked about this, like in Colossians. Uh, he says, I wrote this when I was in prison. Second Thessalonians. I write every epistle down. That is mine. Um, Galatians 6. I see what large letters I've written. <laughs> right? This is common for Paul. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. The word there is anathema, by the way, in, in Latin. Our Lord, come. That's maranatha, which is a transliteration of Aramaic into Greek. Our Lord, come. We talked about that. Oh, I actually talked about that with my aunt uh, and my mother the other day. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The lovely ending. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. I mean, that's really been the point of this letter. It's like, try to reconcile. But you, if you can't, if they won't listen to God's word, um, you have to set them aside. You know, remember, the eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's Jesus' word. I know it's kind of hard to put that right at the end. Um, but notice, it's always, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who's going to do this. Our Lord, come, right? Come quickly. And then grace uh, upon you. Um, notice the greet one another with the holy kiss. We don't really do that anymore. We now have the holy handshake, although we're in COVID, so we don't even have the holy handshake anymore. Um, this is an Old Testament kind of thing. I don't know if you know about this. Um, where friends or family members would greet each other and say farewell with a kiss. Actually, my wife's family still did that uh, up until pretty recently. You know, uh, both her father and grandfather are dead, so we don't see each other as much. Um, but note also that then you wouldn't do this to someone whom you were um, separated from. So, you know, if you know your brother has a sin against you, leave your gift before the altar and go and reconcile to your brother. And that would be evidenced um, by your willingness to give them, again, that holy kiss. Um, so, I think Paul uses that term, holy kiss, um, to distinguish it from any other kind of, you know, erotic or romantic kissing, or like the kiss of Judas, right? That was a treacherous kiss. Right? This, is, this is the one where people, you know, set aside their frictions, um, set aside their sin, they forgive one another. Uh, and they're able to greet one another uh, in a really kind of a very intimate way. Uh, that seems very foreign to us, but it, I, think it's, I think it's helpful. He says the same thing in Romans 16, by the way. Um, the handshake, well, you probably, you, I don't know, will you shake hands with an enemy? Probably not, right? So maybe, maybe that's a reasonable substitute for us, although it's not quite as intimate, although today it would be, <laughs> wouldn't it? All right. I mean, again, I talked about the church being in their house. Um, we hear about that also in Romans 16. There's a church uh, in Epinatus' house, I think. Yeah. So very, very similar. Um, so remember, this letter would have been read um, in public worship, right? So epistles or letters written from, a, from an apostle um, would be read out loud to the whole congregation gathered in assembly. Not necessarily a scripture, at least not at this point, um, but later would be, of course. Um, and so this holy kiss um, is recommended here and at the end of 1 Corinthians, but also at the end of Romans 16, in Romans 16, as I said. And it does seem to be then a, 
a liturg- it becomes a liturgical action. We know this is true because even a century later, uh, the writer Justin Martin, Martyr, excuse me, testified that the greeting of peace followed the prayers in the liturgy at Rome. All right, so already in the in the second century, I think, yeah, Justin Martyr, um, this is what they did in Rome. So there would be that that kiss or that handshake today uh, would happen before, um, after I should say after the um, after the preaching and before the prayers, and then the Lord's Supper. And so it seems to be that um, this happens quite often. There's kind of suggestions by Paul in an epistle that ends up becoming liturgical. It becomes part of just the practice of the church as an influence of shaping that. And so uh, the theory here is that the, these chapters, or these verses, verses 20 through like 24, um, you know, have kind of early traces of the, of the first church. And actually, I like the way uh, that one person kind of suggests this goes. He says, we are at Corinth at the meeting of the congregation. A letter from the apostle is being read out and draws near its end. And then rings out the liturgical phrase, greet one another with the holy kiss, as the saints kiss you also in Christian communion. And the Corinthians kiss one another. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. And with thy spirit answers the church. And then the letter is ended and the Lord's Supper begins. Really kind of a beautiful uh, idea, I think, of what was happening there. All right, so, uh, and again, just just to recap a little bit about this anathema, this accursed, this has been a theme through the whole book, and maybe if you haven't been with us, you've missed this, um, but remember, uh, we talked about, like, the love of worldly pleasures, especially with that incestuous man, that was in chapter five, talked about how they were, you know, kind of wrangling over property by means of lawsuits, they were suing one another, that was in chapter six. Um, later in chapter six, there's the whole, like, resorting to temple prostitution, Um in chapters 8 and 10, he talks about not reclining at and eating in the uh, heathen temples. And then um, the way that they kind of use their spiritual gifts against one another in uh, chapters 12 and 14. And then, you know, all of that is to separate them from one another and then also from faith in Jesus. Yeah, so anyone who, who's proud or boastful in themselves um, is set apart. Again, we talked about Maranatha and then benediction. So. I think that's it. Amen. We'd say First Corinthians. How many lessons? I don't even know how long that took for us to get through. But hopefully that's been edifying for you and a delight for you. And uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do if we're going to meet again next Wednesday. Um, well, you know what? You can leave me a note below or you can email or um, call and leave a message. Just let me know what you think. Here's my struggle. The uh, 8.15 or 8.30, whatever time, Sunday morning time slot, isn't really all that effective um, as far as attendance goes. It's basically the same people who are here tonight, um, are usually here tonight, that would attend on Sunday morning. And it ends up being actually quite a long morning, especially as um, we have things after church. Say, for example, um, a listening session of voters' assembly. There's the counters that are doing their thing. Um, generally speaking, when I say the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, amen, you're like, we're done, we're going to go home, which is exactly the right answer. (laughs) Um, And hanging out for a long time, even for a whole other Bible class after church, uh, it's fine, but um, we end up having conflicts. Uh, It ends up being pretty late morning. You know, we'd be nigh on to noon before we're done. 
So I'm not really a fan of that, but the 8, 15, 8.30 is quite early. We had difficulty with children, and, you know, especially with Sunday school, which um, I don't even know what we can do with that yet. So my thought is, is that we continue to do some kind of online-based Bible study. Um, it's just not as, uh, I want to say, not as interesting for me. Um, I love doing the study and preparing for it, um, but it's hard for me to interact because, I mean, I can ask questions, I have to wait. I guess we could do it via Zoom again, we could try that, uh, but we were having major Zoom issues too. I'm just not sure how to go about uh, a regular, consistent Bible study. Um, I will say this, uh, we are going to resume Thursday morning Bible study at, um, at Emmanuel, Adel. That's a joint Bible study between our two congregations. Um, they're still in vacancy, and I think that's going to resume in October. So just a few weeks out. Um, although I won't live stream that. I don't intend to anyway. Um, so that's one opportunity for us to gather together. If you can do a Thursday morning. Um, if you're a working person, this might actually be the best time. But then again, it's pretty late. So you can tell my struggle. All right. I'm sorry if I don't. I'm not really kind of nailing anything down here. Uh, just not quite sure how to handle it, apart from making one of the Sunday morning schedule changes that we've talked about, like, um, you know, having divine service earlier than 9.30, say at, at uh, 9, and then having Bible study after that so that we're not getting too close to noon, um, and then just canceling when we have other things that we need to do, or not having voters meetings on Sunday morning so that we can, can have consistent Bible study. We still have the counter issue. We'd like to have like a fellowship time then where we could have like coffee uh, in between and then get back to studying the scriptures in kind of a casual way after divine service. I don't know um, without doing a lot of rethinking. So um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll continue with Wednesday. That's probably the best. And uh, let me know what you'd like to study. I guess that's the other big question, right? What should we do next if not finish this book? Now, what would be an edifying one for you? Preferably something I haven't studied before. If you want to get really risque, you know, we could look at like Judges or um, Hosea. <laughs> a lot of fun stuff to talk about in there, gruesome and otherwise. Um, yeah, your choice. So if you have uh, any opinions about either time, schedule, how we can go about this, uh, also what you'd like to study. It could be topical too, I suppose. Um, another alternative actually is that we just resume the uh, book of John. So we, we left off, I think, in John 13 um, because of the COVID lockdown. That was our Sunday morning class. We could re actually resume that here uh, in the evenings. So give me some ideas of what you think. All right. Lord be with you all and have a pleasant evening.